This episode of Check the Locks is brought to you by our friends at Audible. Audible is your one-stop shop for audio entertainment where you can always find the best of what you love or discover something new. That's right. Audible offers an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre, from mysteries, thrillers, biographies, and of course, true crime. And as an Audible member, you can choose one title a month from their catalog to keep forever, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. Audible members also get access to thousands of podcasts from popular favorites, exclusive new series, and this very podcast you're listening to now. Plus, the Audible app makes it easy to listen anytime, anywhere. While traveling, working out, walking the dog, doing chores, Audible makes listening anywhere easy. And best of all, Check the Locks listeners can try Audible for free for 30 days. So head over to audibletrial.com slash check the locks or click the link in the show notes to start enjoying Audible today. Warning, Check the Locks podcast is a true crime podcast and may contain graphic descriptions of violence, murder, sexual assault, and more. Check the Locks podcast is not appropriate for all listeners. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Welcome back to Check the Locks Podcast. As always, I'm John Connor. I'm Olivia Cornu. Saying thank you for joining us this week as we dive into yet another truly terrifying true crime case. Before we get started, Olivia, as always, it's wonderful to see you. It's been, what, two and a half weeks since we saw each other before we left for vacation? Yeah, it's been a while. Yeah, it's been a, a an unusually hot minute since we've seen each other. And for those who listen to the show, you may know that, you know, our team suffered a, a, a pretty big loss. We lost our post-production editor, you know, my friend for 20 years, Matt Halliday. And I have to tell you, like coming in and sitting down to do this, like I was excited to see you. But then there's also that like. This is our first episode to record without Matt. Yeah. And you feel like something's missing. Missing. Yeah. But I'm really glad to be here with you, and I know that we've talked about it, but in Matt's memory, we're going to continue to do absolutely the best job that we can with this show, and we're going to continue and move forward. And and really, I mean, just thinking about him as a friend, you know, he believed in what we were doing. I talked to his wife on the phone, and she was like, no offense, but I asked him, like, why are you helping this guy with his podcast for, like, little to no money? You can make money doing other things. And he said that he believed in us. And what we were doing and that this was something that was special and could go the distance. And so I know for myself personally, and I know in talking to you, like that's really what I want us to try to do is just keep our foot on the gas and and do absolutely the best job that we can. So, yeah, absolutely. And I think every episode from here on out or even the ones prior to this recording are all dedicated to Matt. Yeah. Check the locks forever and always going forward will be dedicated to Matt's memory because he was such a big part of what we did. And, and you know, you may be like, who's Matt? You know what I mean? But Matt worked very hard behind the scenes. He made us sound professional when we're just two goofballs, you know, sitting here talking about <laughs> crimes. He made us sound like we knew what we were doing. Um, and, you know, he's going to be he's going to be missed. I know I'm going to miss him a lot. And I miss just being able to call him and text him. And, you know, it's just hard. But yeah. 
I think being able to do this is bringing a lot of comfort in that because it's still an opportunity to do something in his honor and, and continue something that I know that he believed in. Yeah. But with that being said, how was your vacation? Because I want to make sure that, you know, we're circling around back to the fun stuff. Yeah, we were both on vacation together, and I don't think this has happened yet. No, this was the first time. And we both went to the beach. Yeah. Mexico was amazing. Got eight more dives in. Starting to get the hang of it. Trying to figure out how I can go back. How was yours? It was good. I didn't shoot a bullseye with a bow and arrow like somebody sent me a video. Mm -hmm. But your kid looked cuter than I could ever look in my bathing suit and little dress with her and her little friend. She was rocking the confidence. We went to Panama uh-huh. City Beach. And first of all, we stopped at a Bucky's. So if you're not familiar with Bucky's, it is like a truck stop slash Walmart. Do you know, I've never been in one, but I loved their snacks. I had never been in one before either. And so I walked in. It was kind of overwhelming because, you know, you're expecting it just to be like a truck stop, but they have everything. everything. I mean, there was a guy pulling out a brisket out of a smoker in the middle of the store and he's chopping up brisket to make brisket tacos. Oh, that's cool. Got to get the like golden nuggets or uh, little caramel nuggets. The Bucky nuggets. Yeah. yeah those are the- I got in trouble because I bought some for my daughter and then I ate them all <laughs> when she was asleep. So fun fact, you can order more on Amazon. Oh, They'll send them right to your really? house. Yeah. The one time I was going to stop on the way to the beach, it was storming so bad. I was like, I am not parking far going in there. No. Well, you would think going to the beach would be like the big highlight for the kid. Mm. And the kid was like, Bucky's was the best part of this whole vacation. <laughs> she got a stuffed beaver. And then on the way back, she's like, we're going to Bucky's, right? And then we got there and Bucky himself was there. Oh, my god! Like gosh. a Chuck E. Cheese yeah. mascot style. So we have pictures of my daughter with Bucky. Oh, I didn't get those. Yeah, we had to go back. She did one set and she was like, I want more pictures. And we had to <laughs> go back and ask him again. Was the next time just get you a nice little room at the whatever little hotels by the Bucky's, you know, like the Holiday Inn or I don't know. Red Roof Inn, whatever. Yeah, it has a nice little pool. The kid can entertain herself there. Y'all can do all that and then go to Bucky's. You would have thought it was Disney World. And she was just like, can I get this? Can I get that? Can I get this? <laughs> She's the same way at Cracker Barrel. Like you would think it's like the cool, like the most expensive place in the world, but it's just because all like little cheap crap that kids want. Right. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? So she loses her mind. But yeah, we had a great time. If you've ever been uh, to Panama City, we went to a very, it's a very touristy place, but it's called Pineapple Willies. Mm-hmm. And they serve all like their drinks in like these plastic pineapple cartoon character oh, cups. That's cute. The whole time she was like, I want to go back to Pineapple Willis because they gave her little uh, temporary tattoos when she left and stuff. And so it was a lot of fun. We had a good time. I went to Panama City with my sister and my brother-in-law. And I can't remember if my oldest nephew was like a baby baby. I'm pretty sure he was there because I'm pretty sure I was going to take the family photos. But we stayed at a place called uh, Seychelles or whatever. What is it? Like Seychelles yeah, or whatever. But it's not pronounced that way. But anyways, the whole time we were like, Seychelles for all of our pictures because my <laughs> sister was like a new mom on her camera and everything. It was cute. That's the only time I think I've been to Panama. Yeah, it was fun. It's uh, the traffic is insane to like be like, oh, like we're going to go get a pizza. It was like a 30 minute drive just going like a minute down the road yeah. because there's just so many people there. But yeah. it was a good time. And the hotel was right on the beach. And but- yeah, she did boogie boarding and all that stuff. So she had a blast. It was it was good. It was a good week to be down there with the news because it was just, you know, made it a little easier to process. So yeah. I was happy. You know, we had that as a distraction and could get some family time in. Yeah. I don't know if I sent you my um, beachfront front door villa. I think you sent me a picture of like you in a hammock or something. Me in a hammock? 
or it was something of that nature. I was like, how's the trip going? And you sent me a, a picture. Uh-huh. I'll have to look back through. Yeah. But no, my, my little house with my friend was literally, you open the door, there was the beach and the ocean. It's lovely. I'm a smoker and there was no smoking on the ground. So you had to go out to the street. We were on the fourth floor. So I was like constantly like, I'll be back and getting in the elevator. No, but I got my steps in. I'll tell you that. What <laughs> never, never been a healthier smoker. <laughs> I'm like, did you quit? No, not that week. I'll tell you that. That was not the week for me to quit. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. Okay. Well, what do you got this week? We need to get going. Well, yeah, let's jump into it. I just, you know, again, I'm really happy to be back and be able to jump in with you. And this week, you know me, you know that I love like these old cases. I call them like time machine cases because there's just something to me about like investigators and like the 40s and 50s that I'm like, you must have had to work so much harder to close a case, right? Because like we don't have, they didn't have the technology that we have now. There wasn't databases, like departments didn't communicate with each other. So I just, I've got a fondness for these types of cases and, and going back to these decades. And that's exactly what we're doing this week. So I don't know if you just want to jump into it. I'm going to warn you. It's a longer one. This is my first long one in a long, like heavy hitter in a while. Right. I'm excited. I like your heavy hitters. Well, and if you're listening, buckle in, hope you got a lot of time in the car today because I want to make sure that (laughs) you get to enjoy it. So this week we're going back to Berkeley, California in 1955. Now, at this point in history, people were dancing to Rocking Around the Clock by Elvis Presley. The card game Canasta was becoming insanely popular, and Coca-Cola had just begun selling their drink in cans. And Olivia, I know you love the inflation adjustment facts and things like that. So fun fact, the average cost of a home in 1955 was $10,950. Oh my God, I could have so many homes. Well, adjusted for inflation, that's the equivalent of 123948000 I mean, where are they doing their numbers at the price of a house? Because uh, New Orleans is not, um, you don't get much for your money. Yeah, here, I'll tell you what, here in Nashville, 123 will buy you a tent under the overpass probably. <laughs> like, yeah. like yeah. it's pricey. Now, Stephanie Bryan was a 14-year-old girl and the oldest of five children. In 1955, Stephanie was a ninth grader at Willard Middle School. She was a quiet girl who enjoyed reading and was quite studious. Her parents, Charles and Mary Bryan, had moved to California from Massachusetts two years earlier. Charles was a radiologist at Oakland Hospital, and Mary stayed home to tend to the house and the children. Now, every weekday, Stephanie would walk from school to her home at 131 Alvarado Road. Alvarado Road at the time was a quiet street that ran directly behind the Claremont Hotel. On the way home, Stephanie would often stop for a snack at Prings, a local donut shop with her friend Marianne. The pair would also visit the Elmwood Pet Shop. Now, being from New England, the couple prided themselves on punctuality and they expected the same from their children. And on April 28, 1955, when Stephanie didn't return home from school, Mary Bryan felt something might be wrong. Her daughter was normally released from school at 3.15, so when she wasn't home by 4 o'clock, a parent's panic began to set in. Mary called the school and the homes of Stephanie's friends. Everyone had seen the 14-year-old leaving school and walking home that day, and Mary had learned from Stephanie's friend, Mary Ann, that the pair had stopped by the library, Stephanie checked out some books, and they then headed to the donut shop. After getting their snack, the pair split up near the entrance to the Claremont Hotel. Mary Ann had a tennis lesson, and Stephanie was going to continue on home. Now, it was only a five-minute walk between the Claremont Hotel and the girls' home on Alvarado Road. But at some point during her walk, Stephanie disappeared. Now, Stephanie's father, Charles, rushed home when his wife phoned him about their missing daughter. And once he arrived, the couple quickly contacted the local police. 
Now, Olivia, as we've discussed on the show before, especially during this time, cases of children being reported missing weren't always taken seriously. I'm not sure if you remember the disappearance of Christopher DeNoyer. It was one of the very early episodes that we did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, you know, they reported him missing and they were just like, he ran away. And I feel like we've run into that quite a bit. Quite a bit, yeah. And most of the time, the parents were told that their child probably ran away and would come walking in the front door before they knew it. But Stephanie Bryan's disappearance was different, and the police put out an all-points bulletin for the 14-year-old. Investigators searched the grounds of the Claremont Hotel until nightfall, and when the morning came, the search continued. They looked for any possible clues, a backpack, any witnesses, but unfortunately, the search didn't turn up anything. There was no sign of Stephanie Bryan. But on May 1st, 1955, detectives finally caught a break. One of Stephanie's school textbooks was found on the side of Franklin Canyon Road near Martinez, California. Inside was Stephanie's name written in her handwriting. It was at this point that a search party of 100 people, including six FBI agents, began to comb the Contra Costa Hills. But there was still no sign of Stephanie. And before we go any further, I wanted to kind of pick your brain where you are with this case, because, again, I know I talk about this all the time. I don't know if this is just the dad in me. But I found myself putting myself in the parent's shoes and being like, oh, if my kid didn't come home, I'd be in meltdown mode, you know. And so I didn't know if you were feeling the same way or where you were. Yeah, I mean, it's still so early. Like I I, like like we mentioned before is everybody gives them the runaround like they'll be fine. They'll be back. They'll be back. Don't worry. Like I wonder what was just so different about it, you know, that made the police take them seriously and be on the lookout for Yeah, in my research, I think that part of it was that Berkeley at this time was a really kind of leave it to Beaver type of suburb. Mm -hmm. So people disappearing or maybe even kids just running away wasn't very frequent. So I don't know if maybe that had something to do with it. Yeah. And then I'm just like, you know, this hotel didn't have surveillance cameras, but no, it's 1955. Yeah, it was just some guy being like, did you see what happened out there? See, (laughs) somebody running around there. The bellman just waiting and watching, you know. Right. Now, it was around the same time that another tip came in. Several witnesses came forward and they all had a similar story. They remembered seeing a teenage girl struggling in the back of a gray colored Pontiac near Tunnel Road. One witness said they believed the girl was yelling no as the man driving reached back to hit her. And all of the witnesses claimed that what they saw took place on April 28th, the day that Stephanie went missing. Now, in an interview with a local newspaper, Stephanie's father would say, the thing I can't understand, the thing that paints the gloomy picture for all of us, are these people who saw a girl being beaten in a car on the highway and who didn't interfere or even call the police. Are we so used to seeing people beaten that we pay no attention? That's terrible. And like you shouldn't be seeing that many people being beaten in the back of a car in 1955. Like nowadays I could see, oh, I'm not going to intervene because now I'm going to get shot or I'm going to, you know, somebody's going to get mad. It's going to turn into an altercation because that's what we see on the news every day. But in 1955, they should just call. Right. And I know for me personally that even if it was, you know, I might have a, you know, there's a good chance I might get shot or something like that. If there's somebody roughing up a teenager, I'm stepping in. That's just, you know, there's not a lot of stuff that I, if it's a fight between two adults or whatever, but if it's somebody who's like abusing a child, I think I would have to interject in that situation. For sure. And like, it doesn't hurt to call 911. No. If you see something, say something. That's what they tell you at the airport over and over. Now, what's funny is that. 911 actually wasn't invented yet. 911 didn't come around until 1968. Oh my gosh, that's like my mom was like five. Yep, I think my mom was like three years old. Yeah, that's wild. 
before that, you actually had to call each service individually. So if I had to call the police, I had to call the the seven digit police number. If I had to call the fire department, I had to call that emergency number. There was no like central system. Cause I was like, well, you know, that's a really good point. But I was like, this is also 1955. So was that even invented yet? Fun fact. Now, by this point, weeks had passed, then months, and the police were still baffled by what could have happened to Stephanie Bryan. But on July 15, 1955, the case would take an incredibly strange turn. Georgia Abbott was a 32-year-old president of the Oakland branch of the State Cosmetologists Association. Because of her position, Georgia would frequently host and attend events, and Georgia enjoyed a good party. While preparing for the latest soiree, Georgia's friend Otto Desmond suggested something that she loved. It should be a costume party. And Georgia was immediately a fan of the idea. And she quickly went to the basement of her Almeida home that she shared with her husband, Burton Abbott. Georgia had boxes of old clothes in the basement and she was sure that she could put together a silly outfit. While rummaging through the old boxes, she noticed something odd, a red purse. Now, Georgia didn't remember ever owning a red purse, and her curiosity was piqued. When she opened the small purse, she was immediately shocked by what she found. Inside was an ID card for a teenage girl, and the name on that card read Stephanie Bryan. Georgia recognized the girl's name and quickly ran upstairs. And after confirming that Stephanie Bryan was the missing teen from the newspapers with Otto, she immediately rang the police. But her husband, Burton, showed nearly no reaction. When the police arrived at the Abbott home, they found Georgia obviously confused. She was baffled by how it could be possible that Stephanie's ID was in her home. But detectives noticed that something was off with Burton Abbott. They noted that he seemed unfazed. Now, Burton, a 27-year-old accounting student at UC Berkeley, just sat quietly on the couch doing a crossword puzzle. Now, you have to remember that this was the biggest missing persons case in the history of the Bay Area at the time. Stephanie's face was on the front page of every local paper every single day. So Burton being so casual about her purse being found in his basement was an immediate red flag to detectives. Now, when they entered the basement, the police noticed that only half of it was finished and most of the floor was only dirt. With the purse being located in the basement, detectives wondered if any other evidence may be buried. So they began to dig and what they found was truly shocking. There, buried in the basement dirt, was Stephanie's bra, glasses, two library books, and school notebooks. And detectives immediately turned their sights to Burton Abbott. Now, at this time, the house was filled with police officers and FBI agents. They asked Burton how Stephanie Bryan's belongings could have ended up in his home, and he insisted that they had been planted. Burton shared that his home had been used as a polling place only a few months prior, but the authorities weren't buying it as only the garage of the home had been open to voters. Detectives then asked if he could recall his whereabouts on April 28th of that year. According to Burton Abbott, he had left his home at about 11 a.m. that day and drove to his family's cottage in Trinity County. He told police that he stopped in Sacramento before continuing the drive to Wildwood. According to Burton, he planned to enjoy the opening day of fishing season. However, over time, this story would change frequently. Burton also shared another important detail that caught the attention of investigators. At the time of Stephanie's disappearance, he drove a gray Pontiac sedan, but he claimed that he had traded it in shortly after his trip. So I wanted to stop right there, Olivia. What are you thinking? Where's your head at as we're going through this? This guy had this all planned out. You've still yet to see the movie, Mr. Brooks, correct? I have not seen it yet. Yeah, you need to watch it. 
because I feel like I reference this movie a lot. But he's just like it's so put together, you know. It's not does it, this doesn't seem like a fly of a seats kind of murder. He had the plan planned out. Yeah, and we're going to talk a little bit more about like the kind of person that he was here in just a minute. But from all the research that I did in this, he kind of seemed almost like a little bit of a bookworm a little bit. Like mm-hmm. like I said, we'll talk about it a little bit as we as we go through. I don't That's wanna, where I'm at right now. Yeah. This is calculated and planned. Well, to police, Burton Abbott didn't seem like the typical suspect. He was thin and his chest was caved from having a bad case of tuberculosis. In fact, he had met Georgia while being treated in the hospital. And the couple shared a four-year-old son. Now, word of what was found in the Abbott's basement quickly spread to the press. And when reporters arrived at the home, Georgia defended her husband, saying, I know it was impossible for my husband to do this. But those in the press knew that they were working on an extremely large story. And two days later, reporters from the Examiner arrived at the Abbott's cottage in Wildwood. And shockingly, this cabin had a dark and murderous history of its own. So Olivia, in 1940... A miner named Lloyd Snyder had staked a claim to the 20-acre plot of land with George's father. But one night in 1951, Snyder got into an argument with a friend and shot him dead. He then dismembered the body inside of the cabin, put the pieces into sacks, and buried them around the property. And only days before being transferred to San Quentin Prison, Snyder signed the deed over to George's brother. And now the examiner reporters were on the hunt for a possible second body, which I was really shocked by that only four years earlier. Yeah, this was happening. Yeah. I have a theory. What is it? I wonder if Burton knew about this history and like thought he could put the blame on the previous owners. So he murdered somebody. I like that theory. He definitely would have known about it because he was married to Georgia. And this happened in 1951 and 1955. They had a four-year-old son. So they would have had to have been married when this actually happened. But I like it. Let's go through and see if we're on the right track. Sounds like I'm not, but okay. You made me feel okay about my theory. (laughs) Continue. The newsmen searched the area with the help of dogs. And at around 8.20 p.m., they made a heartbreaking discovery. Search dogs had found a leg sticking up from the ground the foot still wearing a small white saddle shoe. The body had been buried in a thickly wooded knoll only about 250 yards from the Abbott's cabin. Edward Montgomery, one of the reporters who discovered the body, would write just days later, it was a nightmare scene I'll never forget. At this point, the reporters rushed back to town. First, they called and notified the police about what they had discovered. Then they called their editor and let them know that they had a break in the Bay Area's biggest story to date. And the examiner immediately sent a reporter to the Abbott's home. And as Burton was being arrested, he continued to claim his innocence, crying, I don't know how the body got there. I don't know anything about it. I'm still staying with my story. Now, back at the crime scene, the authorities were still processing the evidence. There were dark stains around the waist of the body, and investigators believed it to be blood, but it was hard to tell in the twilight of the sunset. And gently scraping away at the soil, another sad discovery was made. Although the body was badly decomposed, the police were able to recover pieces of clothing. This included a blue and green turquoise skirt, the same kind that Stephanie was wearing on the day that she disappeared. And now, the police had to deliver the heartbreaking news to the Bryan family. Stephanie's father, Charles, said he had no doubt that the body that was discovered was his daughter's. He also had no doubt that Burton Abbott was the man who murdered her. I wish they'd turn him over to me, he said. I'd take care of him. But then, Charles seemed to put his anger aside and apologize for his bitterness. I'll wager you right now that he never goes to the gas chamber, he said. 
The only question in my mind now is how soon they'll turn the Sob Sisters loose and get them off. Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945. What does he mean by the Sob Sisters? So there wasn't really any clarity in that. And I think it might have just been kind of the lingo of the time. But I think it would be like a sob story, maybe, or like this poor, pitiful guy or something of that nature. But I couldn't find anything. I I know that Burton Abbott, they referenced his mother, but nothing with sisters or anything like that. So it was leading me to believe that it was maybe just like a like a phrase at that time. Okay. Okay. Now, Burton Abbott's trial would begin in 1955, and for four months, the trial would dominate the front page of every local paper. And during opening statements, the prosecution came out swinging. Alameda County District Attorney J. Frank Coakley called Abbott the epitome of extreme vanity, egoism, and selfishness. And he also shared that the reason Stephanie Bryan never returned home from school that day was only mere feet from them in the courtroom. But for all of Coakley's tough talk, he knew getting charges to stick to Burton Abbott would be a challenge. He had no witnesses that could certainly place him with Stephanie on the day that she disappeared. And while they did have the purse from his basement, they had no direct evidence to tie Burton Abbott to the crime. In fact, most people who followed the case believed a conviction would be unlikely. But the prosecution and the defense knew that the case would come down to a convincing timeline. And both sides did their best to present the timeline in their favor. Coakley knew that he would have to place Burton Abbott at least in the area at the time of Stephanie's disappearance. And luckily, he was able to track down a witness who testified that they saw Abbott in that local donut shop at around 3 p.m. on April 28th. Now, if you remember, Marianne, who is Stephanie's friend, said that they visited that shop. They get out of school at 3.15, so it's very likely that he could have been there. Yeah, he could have been there. And then they parted ways right after they got to the hotel. Right. Now, another witness testified that they saw a gray Pontiac run a red light while heading in the direction of the Claremont Hotel at around 3.30. Additionally, five other witnesses testified that they heard a girl screaming for help in the backseat of a car that matched Abbott's. However, those witnesses couldn't say definitively that it was Abbott who was driving. And it was then that the prosecution laid out their theory to the jury. Coakley believed that Burton Abbott had abducted, raped, and murdered Stephanie Bryan and the Contra Costa Hills. They believed that he then drove to the family's cabin and buried the body. Now, Coakley had no solid evidence to prove this theory, and again, he relied on witnesses to poke holes in Abbott's story. First was the innkeeper at the Wildwood Bar. Abbott had told detectives that he stopped at the bar that night to have a drink while on his way to the cabin. But the innkeeper testified that Burton never came in on April 28th. Then the family's babysitter testified. She told the jury that on the night of Stephanie's disappearance, Burton called the family's home and told them not to join him at the cabin as the weather was no good. And finally, a friend of Burton Abbott took the stand. Now, this man was a Wildwood local who would often visit Abbott's cabin. And according to the witness, Abbott had been acting odd on the 28th. Most notably, he had broken a tradition that the two had had for quite some time. 
Normally, when the friend would visit, Abbott would invite the man in to talk and catch up. But on this day, he didn't. It was now the beginning of December 1955, and the trial was still in motion. At this point, Coakley knew that the lack of direct evidence would mean that he would have to play to the jury's emotions. He attempted to introduce a rather gory photo into evidence, but Abbott's defense team objected. Abbott's attorney, Stanley D. White, argued that it was for no other reason than to inflame the jury and raise prejudice against the defendant. And Judge Wade Snook agreed. But when the prosecution called a pathologist to the stand, the judge did allow Coakley to show pieces of clothing taken from Stephanie Bryan's body. Now, Olivia, these were unwashed pieces of Stephanie's skirt that had been kept in a box since June in California. And when they were entered into evidence, the smell was so bad that some spectators had to leave the courtroom for fear of becoming physically ill. Oh my gosh. I mean, I can imagine. I was just thinking as a member of a jury once, seeing some of the evidence was really tough to handle. So then when you added that smell factor to it, I can imagine because you're already just feeling not right looking at crime scene photos or, you know, people with bullet wounds and, you know, the pictures that they take. It's very disturbing and you already don't feel right. So I can only imagine that feeling with the smell knowing like this hasn't been washed or touched since they found her. Like it's a piece of her, you know, I can relate to that. Yeah. And, you know, why the gallery, people who were there observing the case and the press, they had the ability to leave. The jurors didn't. And it took a toll on the 12 people sitting in that box. Now, the pathologist had testified that Stephanie Bryan had died of blunt force trauma to the head. Additionally, her underwear had been tied and knotted around her throat. Now, throughout the trial, Burton Abbott seemed unaffected by what was happening in the courtroom, almost seeming to be detached from what was happening. In fact, the jailers had talked about how Abbott seemed to sleep super peacefully every night. But once this evidence was entered in the record, that seemed to change. Now, Abbott's defense tried to paint him as being physically unable to abduct, murder, and bury a body in the thick woods near the cabin. They argued that his bout of tuberculosis had left him incapable of strenuous physical activity. They pointed to the fact that Abbott weighed only 134 pounds while Stephanie Bryant weighed 105. And the defense would go through great lengths to impress this upon the jury. On December 6th, Abbott's attorney asked him to remove his shirt in the courthouse. He was then asked to parade back and forth in front of the juror's box. See, Burton Abbott had had part of his ribs removed to assist his breathing when he was being treated for tuberculosis. His scar is on display for the jury. But testimony from Abbott's own doctor would refute the defense's claims. Livermore Veterans Hospital doctor Elmer Shabert, who had treated Abbott for years, said Abbott was in no way currently, quote, crippled. In fact, Dr. Shabbert shared with the jury that he had noticed a significant change in Abbott's personality. According to the good doctor, when Burton Abbott first began his treatment in the early 1950s, he was quite combative, and he would question the doctors about any procedure they recommended. But when he returned to the office shortly after Stephanie's disappearance, things were different. On these visits, he seemed almost over-eager to be admitted for any suggested procedure. And I wanted to kind of pick your brain there a little bit because to me, it was almost like, oh, you need me to come in and do that? Like, yeah, I'll get off the radar. Sure. You want, want me to be at the hospital for a week? So I didn't know if maybe you were getting the same vibe from that. Yeah, I think it's like a kind of like a um, maybe a cat and mouse might not be the right term, but where he's like thinking he's going to manipulate the situation. 
Yeah, it's almost like he's trying to think a step ahead where he's like, well, it couldn't have been me. I was in the hospital right. with this procedure. I'm so weak. I'm so. Right, right, right. You know, now it was also around this time that a juror had to be removed. This particular member of the jury realized that he worked with Abbott's brother at a local naval station. And while they had never spoken, they only worked about 25 feet from one another. After the juror's dismissal, he was asked if he believed the state had made a strong enough case against Abbott. The juror shook his head and said no, saying he didn't believe that there was enough evidence to convict. Now, at this time, it was close to Christmas 1955, and Abbott's defense team was about to make a grave mistake. They put Burton Abbott on the stand to testify. When answering his attorney's question, all seemed to go well. He laid out his version of what happened the day that Stephanie went missing. And in his testimony, Abbott claimed to have never crossed paths with Stephanie Bryan. But things changed when Coakley had the chance to cross-examine the accused. Olivia, Burton Abbott spent just over 13 hours on the stand, and 11 of those were spent being cross-examined and grilled by Frank Coakley, the prosecutor. I feel like that's a lot of time. Yeah, it was broken up over days. Yeah, I guess that's true because you're doing, you know, he could spend a whole day and that'd be, you know, nine hours. I guess that yeah. makes sense. But to be cross-examined for, that means your attorney only asked you about two hours worth of questions and yeah, the rest is somebody, yeah, just being like. Trying to like trick you. Trip you up, yeah. Now, when answering his defense attorney's question, Abbott could recall his version of events for the day of April 28th without any issue. But when questioned by the prosecution, he simply couldn't remember. In fact, Abbott answered a string of 15 questions in a row with either the answer, I don't know, or I don't remember. Now, reporting on what had happened in the courtroom that day, examiner reporter Edward Montgomery, who we mentioned earlier, he would later write, the list of conversations and events which Abbott could not recall had reached an astounding length. And as Coakley's questions continued, Abbott's story continued to change. In his original statement to the police, Burton Abbott provided a route from his home to the UC Berkeley campus. And in this original statement, the route did not pass Stephanie Bryan's school. But when asked on the stand, he described a route that did in fact pass Willard Junior High School. And when asked by Coakley which route was in fact his usual, Abbott replied, both of them. And through questioning, the prosecution also managed to catch Abbott in another lie. Since first being questioned by the police, Burton Abbott had claimed that he was in Sacramento at the time of Stephanie's abduction. But while on the stand, he admitted that he hadn't been in Sacramento at all on April 28th. And on January 18, 1956, closing statements began. Now, the defense argued that there was no real evidence to tie Burton Abbott to the crime, only suspicious activity. They also suggested that Otto Desmond, George's friend who was at the home when she found Stephanie's purse, remember he was the guy who suggested that they do a costume party, maybe he was the possible killer. But the prosecution didn't buy it and they weren't pulling any punches. For the first time, Coakley presented the jury with the underwear that had been tied in a knot around Stephanie Bryan's throat. That underwear had been cut off by her killer and slashed several times. And while presenting this heartbreaking evidence to the jury, Coakley referred to Burton Abbott as an unrepentant psychopath. And in an angry and fiery speech, he told the jury, Psychopaths have superficial charm. They make a good first impression, but they do not wear it well. They are untruthful. They have no real, genuine capacity to love another. And it was at this time that Burton Abbott seemed to melt into his chair. According to newspaper reports, 
he was stunned and frightened. And after both sides had nothing further, the jury headed into deliberations. On January 25, 1956, the verdict was read. Burton Abbott was found guilty of first-degree murder and kidnapping, and both verdicts carried the death penalty. When Mary Bryan, Stephanie's mother, was asked about the verdict, she had no response. Her only concern was getting her daughter's body back from the mortuary where it had been held since the trial began. Now we can have Steffi back, she said. Burton Abbott was taken to San Quentin Prison to await his execution, and his attorneys attempted to appeal the conviction for over a year. But on the morning of March 15, 1957, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals denied Abbott's stay of execution. His attorney frantically placed a call to the governor. Now, Abbott was scheduled to be executed at 10 a.m. that day, but he was granted a one-hour stay of execution. During that time, Abbott's defense team frantically filed briefs with the California State Supreme Court. But at 10.42, word had come back. Those briefs had been denied. That same morning, Burton Abbott was walked to the gas chamber at San Quentin. There, he was strapped into a chair, and when a guard asked if he was comfortable, Abbott gave a slight smile. At 11.18, cyanide tablets were dropped into sulfuric acid, creating a toxic gas. Now, ironically, at 11.20 a.m., as Burden Abbott was drawing his last breaths, the phone rang down the hall, and it was the governor. He asked the warden if it was too late for another stay of execution. Yes, he replied. Burton Abbott was dead. So, Olivia, before we close out, when I was doing the research, and I found out that he was strapped in that chair at 1118, and that process had started, and then the governor called literally two minutes later to give him another stay of execution— my mind was kind of blown. So I was just wondering what you thought about that. If you thought that was as crazy as I did. Oh, yeah. I'm like reading along as you're, you know, talking. And I'm like, this is such a drama. I feel like I'm watching a movie right now. Did we ever get the reason as to why the governor decided to call back and say, is it too late? So from what I understand in my research, it sounded like the governor was going to give him another temporary stay for his attorneys to possibly work other appeal processes and things of that nature. Okay. I know you would go like state Supreme Court and then eventually you can go all the way up to the United States Supreme Court. But if you can't get that stay of execution, you know, and another big thing about this as well is it's a debate that we still have going on. Right. Like, should we be taking another person's life, even if it is for the death penalty? So it just kind of feeds that conversation. It was I just found it to be very interesting where, you know, if he just would have had to stop to tie his shoe or like the guard couldn't get right. his cuffs off or sort drop the keys right. or something. Yeah. You know? Just like that tiniest little delay. It was almost like the universe being like, you're out of time, dude. That's what was happening to me today when I couldn't get out of my garage with no power. I was gonna say when you were in a gas chamber. <laughs> like <laughs> But it was your garage with no power. Okay. Yes, I couldn't get the car out. That was the universe being like, you're not going to your parents. Yeah, it's like, you're. I mean, I got delayed for a solid 30 minutes. Had to get the neighbor to come help me and everything. The governor called? He was the like, governor you need called help? and was like, you need to wait. No, anyways. Okay, keep going. Now, if Stephanie Bryan were alive today, she would be 83 years old. And she would most likely have children and grandchildren. But because her life was stolen from her, she will be forever remembered as that sweet 14-year-old girl. A loving sister. A thoughtful and responsible daughter. Just a kid who was ready for a summer vacation. In 1961, the chief psychiatrist at San Quentin Prison discussed his last conversation with Burton Abbott. In that conversation, he told Abbott that if he would only confess to what he did, the governor may grant him clemency. Abbott replied simply, Doc, I can't admit it. Think of what it would do to my mother. And that's this week's case. 
That's guilty right there. That's a good one, John. That was a good one. I felt like I was like in a movie or like a TV show or like, you know, it was wild. Yeah, it was really interesting to research. There is a online publication called uh, SF Gate and they did an incredible story on it. Additionally, I was able to find the newspaper articles from the actual papers at the time that everything was happening. So I did link those up in the uh, sources down in the show description. So if anybody wants to go and look at those old newspaper articles, it's really, really interesting. That's cool. What do you think? I mean, before we get into deadbolt test, what are your overall thoughts? What did you think of the case? Where are you at? I mean, it's a really good case. Like I said, there was so much like jam-packed drama and the 14-year-old girl going missing in 1955. Case was awesome. That was a good story. As far as like the deadbolt test, I mean, it's always scary as a woman of another woman getting kidnapped, raped, abducted, tortured, all the things and left out to drive. So in my mind, it's always going to be like an eight because that can happen to me. But it didn't like scare me. I was more intrigued by this than like, I'm going to go check my locks tonight. But I'm sure I'll be double checking where I'm walking next time because I do that anyways. Yeah, I'm there with you. I think the interesting thing for me is the contrast between now and then, right? Because now it's like, you know, I've got my air tag on me or like my find my iPhone is turned on. Like I'm sharing my location with my wife or something like like that. You're always accessible to someone. Right. You know, you can track a cell phone, something of that nature where that just did not exist. And, you know, I think one of the most interesting parts of the story for me was that it wasn't the police that found this girl's body and worked the case. I mean, they worked the case, but it was these reporters that were like, we're chasing the story down. They're the ones who found the body. There's also this whole crazy theory that Abbott was actually framed by a man. I believe it was Edward Edwards who was the Zodiac killer. They also think that he was responsible for the murder of Teresa Halbach from the Making a Murder documentary. So I didn't cover it a lot because it is a really wild conspiracy theory. And and I honestly think that that is exactly what it is. It's conspiracy. But I thought that might be fun for us to do as like a Patreon episode or a bonus episode. So be on the lookout for that because I think that would be fun to just dive into that. that. Oh, yeah. Because that would mean that this one man committed all of these headline making murders over the course of 60 years. Like he would easily be the most prolific serial killer of all time. Which seems impossible. But like, I mean, doing these cases, anything's possible. So, yeah, I watched a trailer for a documentary about the theory. It's a six part documentary. And just watching the trailer, I was like, these dudes seem a little nutty. So, <laughs> it might be fun to watch and like break down the the theory, but yeah. So I think overall I'm gonna put it at a five. You're gonna put it at a five. It balances yeah. out. Yeah, I think I'm gonna have to go a little bit higher. I'm gonna have to go. I think I might have to put it in at an eight. Okay, this time. seven. Let's go seven. Well, I'm not trying to change yours. If, if it's five for you, I think I'm just Nate because I have a wife and a daughter. You know right, what right, I mean? right. Yeah. And so that's where it gets. You know, like I was out with Millie today in our driveway and she was riding her bike and in my head I was like I could step away for a second yeah turn and your somebody back. could just I right. walk away turn your back for two seconds yeah. pick something up gone and I think that's what the scary thing is for me is just like there's people out there who'll just snatch somebody up you know and I related a lot to Charles Bryan who was like turn him over to me yeah I'll hand I'll figure it out I'll handle yeah. him I'll rip his head off you know yeah. what I mean yeah so I don't know. I thought it was very interesting. And like I said in the beginning, I think it's it's there's something about going back and looking at these cases through the lens of today and just being like, man, I don't know how you would solve something like that, because it feels like most of the cases that we look at from this time period, it's all circumstantial evidence and just attorneys who are really good at making that stick. 
And I think that's, you know, really, really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I can agree with that. All right, John. Well, I could use a palate cleanser. <laughs> you want Well, can I do my spiel first before we get into it? Yes. I'm okay. trying to think of how to like go to the next thing. You're like, I'm done talking I don't about have this. Nothing. <laughs> well, that is where we fall on the deadbolt test for this week's episode. Olivia is coming in at a five slash seven. She's teetering back and forth. <laughs> I'm going to put it in at an eight. But as always, we want to know where does the murder of Stephanie Bryan fall on your deadbolt test? You can let us know. Reach out to us on Instagram at check the locks pod. Find us on Twitter. At check the locks. And if you're not in our Facebook group, what are you doing? Come hang out with us. We would love to get to know you. We would love to spend some time with you. Olivia, this was a very dense case. I need a palate cleanser. Honestly, when we we're talking about that donut shop, I was like, donuts sound great. You got a five-star review for us, something that we can kind of get the taste out of the mouth with. I do. This week's five-star review comes from Allison Binder. And Allison said, hello, John and Olivia. Love the show and listen to it when I am working. I tried to find where to call and leave a fabulous voicemail for you, Olivia, but I could not find it. I wanted to recommend a case about a nurse who was living in Delaware, where I also live and work as a nurse. She wrote a book called Shattered that I read years ago. Her name is Deborah P. Sharp, and she endured an attack, rape, and abduction from her own home. She did not check the locks. She spent time in the abductor's home, hogtied. There's a lot to this one, and it surely scared me into locking up tightly. Hope you enjoyed as well. Take care. Thank you, Allison, for the recommendation and such a great five-star review. And I like it says, fan with a plan. Fan with a plan. That is Allison. Because Suggested she case doesn't rhyme. <laughs> right. I saw that as well. Allison, thank you so much for taking the time to leave us that review. And also, big up to a fellow nurse, right? I know. Yeah, I know. I know, Olivia, as a nurse, you're on the front lines. There's a level of stress that comes with that that a lot of people probably can't understand. So, Allison, thank you for what you do every day. Thank you for being willing to put yourself through that stress to help other people. We would love to send you some goodies. Reach out to us, Instagram. Check the locks pod. Find us on Twitter. Check the locks. If you're in our Facebook group, you can send us a message there. And if you're not a social person, that is totally fine. Head over to checkthelockspod.com. Click the email button. Send us an email. Let us know where to send it. We would love to get something out to you. And Olivia, if somebody would like to have their five-star review right on the podcast, what is the best way to do that? Well, they need to hop on over to the Apple Podcast app. Go to the Check the Lock Shows page. Scroll all the way down where you see all five stars. Click all five stars. Leave us a little bit of love. Tell us what you like. Tell John how great he is, you know, and then maybe we'll send you some cool stuff. They don't have to lie, but yes, please leave us a five-star review. Send him some love. Yeah, and we talk about this every single week, but these five-star reviews, it's not just for us to read them. We love reading them and we love hearing what you think of the show, but these five-star reviews, they also help us to get into other shows' recommendations. They help new listeners find the show. They help us to grow our audience and be able to interact with more people in the Facebook group and just, you know, overall make the family larger. And that has been our number one objective since the day that we started. So if you have left us a five-star review, if you've taken time out of your day to do that, thank you so much for doing so. If you have not, just like Olivia said, hop on over to Apple Podcasts. There is a link, a cheat code in the description of the episode that you're listening to now. You can click that link. It'll take you right over. You can leave that review. And as always, if you are interested in financially supporting Check the Locks, you can help us out by becoming a patron. Head over to patreon.com forward slash check the locks and sign up today. Got a bunch of cool stuff, exclusive stickers, coffee mugs, t-shirts. You also get the episodes early. So for our patrons, last week, the short on time episodes come out on Wednesday. We actually had 
that week short on time out at 1 p.m. Central with no ad so you can listen to it early, kind of get a jump on it. So if you like ad-free episodes, if you like getting stuff early, definitely check it out. And in addition to that, we are actually brainstorming even more ways that we can give more content out on our Patreon. So please make sure that you're keeping an eye out for that. So again, that's patreon.com forward slash check the locks if you do want to help us keep the lights on. And if you can't financially support the show, we definitely understand. Times are crazy. We totally get it. Just listening to the show, sharing it with your friends, and letting people know about what we do means just as much, if not more. So if that is you, you're hanging out with us every week, you're telling your friends to check out this weird little podcast, we appreciate it more than we could ever tell you. From the bottom of our hearts, thank you so much. That's going to help us grow, help us get out in front of more people, and just help us to make our family larger. That is this week's case, but please make sure that you are subscribed to check the locks on your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. We will see you next week with another truly terrifying true crime case. But until then, don't forget to check the locks. See you next week.